0: So the big question is this, in these uncertain times, in this uncertain economy, how are some lawyers adapting their practices so they're not only surviving, they're thriving while others are folding under the pressure? We're talking to those lawyers and legal professionals to find out what's working, what's not, and what they're doing to stay on top. You're listening to Law in the Time of COVID-19. Well, hello there, and thanks for joining us on this episode brought to you by Law Pods, branded marketing podcast for lawyers by lawyers. Now, when the COVID-19 pandemic thrust the world into chaos, lawyers had to continue managing the stressors of practicing law and operating a business while also taking on the monumental task of adjusting their firms to this new normal. Some adjusted quickly, while others continue to grapple with the chaos. On each episode, we're going to be featuring experts, including managing partners, firm managers, marketers, and other professionals from inside and outside the legal field to shed light on how this crisis is affecting them and the strategic steps they're taking to stay in control. Today, I'm having a discussion with John Britton of Corvid Cyber Defense. John is a security operations expert with 13 years of experience in the industry, a communication expert, analyst, advisor, and instructor. In the UK Special Forces, John led a team controlling communication technologies and was deployed three times to Afghanistan. After a stint at Wells Fargo as the lead for their internal cyber team, John is now the Technical Director of Cybersecurity at Corvid Cyber Defense. John, thank you for taking some time out for us today.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day life looks like at Corvid.
1: So as the technical director of cybersecurity, it's my roles and responsibilities to oversee the implementation team, the support team that provide continuous 24-7 support to our current existing clients, and then also assist Eric Osmek, who is one of our senior sales directors, onboard clients successfully, ensuring that the product that we provide them and the services that we're about to onboard onto their organizations truly meets everything that they need.
0: So, John, I thought it was important to talk to you today because this is an increasingly common problem in the legal world. We are inundated with warnings about scams and horror stories of law firms being infiltrated and held hostage. I mean, this happened to one of my friends several years ago. It's a very real threat, and I know it must have been exacerbated when the pandemic pushed many lawyers out of their offices and you know, into their spare bedrooms or onto their couches to start doing their work instead of in the office where they probably had some semblance of cybersecurity.
1: Yes, it did. It, it did increase the threat landscape. I like to simplify it with the fact that you know when we start talking about modern warfare, the traditional approach was to understand that there was a front line and it was a single trench. And on the other side of the trench, there was an, another trench, but the uh, adversary was at. When I joined the army, I kind of had that ideology that that's how it would be. And during my tours of Afghanistan, I very quickly realized it was a 360 warfare. As we evolve and obviously start talking about cybersecurity, it still maintains that 360 warfare, but it takes on multiple dimensions of thought process because today you're not only just having to successfully secure yourself as your organization, which, as you stated pre pandemic, was a single hub, a physical location that had the technology that had probably been in place for a few years. Whereas now, instead of it being a single bubble, we're now looking at multiple smaller bubbles that concentrates around people working from home. But then in the last two months, we've seen attacks that are actually, instead of it being third-party attacks of contractors that are working with the organization, we're now seeing primes being targeted, much like the SolarWinds attack that happened, targeting SolarWinds specifically, that could have an adverse effect on the organization. So it does take into account now the 360 multidimensional security that needs to be in place and yes exactly with the people working from home the approach on how cybersecurity needs to be addressed is slightly different to what it was a year ago today which is it's crazy you know in a whole 365 days we've gone from being a traditional model to now being a very flexible adaptive control mechanism that needs to be in place which in the history of you know cybersecurity or IT as a whole this has never happened so Yeah, any cybersecurity approach that anybody previously had in the last year has definitely been reconsidered.
0: So what have been the major changes that you've been having to make? Like, obviously, I have to assume you probably, the company probably wasn't sitting around waiting for something like this to happen. So when it became apparent that people were about to make that mass exodus, what did your firm do? What kind of problems were you seeing that you had to immediately like spin up a solution for?
1: Yeah, so we were extremely lucky in the fact that when we came to be COVID Cyber Defense, we designed and built a cybersecurity framework that you know is extremely complex on the back end, but it's simplified in the aspects of any client that we work with. It's just a small tablet that they've got to swallow, which meant obviously we were always considering next steps. And one of the pre-steps that we were thinking about was small organizations that don't necessarily have a network infrastructure Or, you know, are the modern type of business that do have the work from home. And this, again, is pre-COVID-19. So we already had some sort of infrastructure in place to allow a VPN, virtual private network, for people working remotely to be able to interconnect into our system to put them behind a firewall. So with that already pre-stage, when corona happened, all of a sudden organizations were going, okay, well, we have to have people work from home. But our current infrastructure is not capable of supporting the huge new bandwidth for people working from home, remoting into the office before going back out the internet. So we we're finding that a lot of organizations were more than willing to drop part of their cybersecurity framework. Well, obviously, because we had that agile approach of a cloud-based connectivity, we were very quick and able to be able to incorporate these remote users utilizing our infrastructure in order for them to still remain secure at home. Again, taking into account that the previous consideration for the business was a physical location with a firewall and all the devices there, whereas obviously now they're at home. And from a technical perspective, what that was limiting is when they're in the office, they may have you know, a one gig connection to the internet, which was fine when people were there. But now that people are working from home, everybody has to connect into the hub in the office before then going back out to the internet to be secure, which Taken into account, not necessarily cybersecurity, but now people are working from home. There is that tendency to allow people to, you know, stream things, listen to music, which obviously steals bandwidth that obviously before, when they're in the office, they weren't doing. So there was a lot of business operational things that had to be taken into account. But for the core value of what we were trying to provide from a cybersecurity, and we're able to adapt the at-home mechanism of having, you know, an endpoint protection, but also having the VPN protection to allow them to go to the internet securely was obviously something that we were very lucky to already have the infrastructure for, but very quick and easy to adapt.
0: Now, for the layperson listening, can you explain exactly what a VPN is?
1: A VPN is basically a a tunnel. If you take for consideration, you have a cup, and you've got the ability to place a straw all the way through that cup. Now, that cup could be full of mucky water, and that mucky water is the internet, theoretically. In there, you've got tadpoles and things that you do not want to see in them, tadpoles potentially being hackers. If you've got the capability of placing a straw all the way through, you can obviously look all the way through and see the light on the other side. So the premise between a VPN is it creates a point-to-point connection that enables a communication string between A and B that is protected and ultimately encrypted. So although you know in some cases, people can see the data passing through and capture that, the encryption on that makes it very hard for the user or sorry the hacker to be able to ever determine what information's in there so it obviously protects the data the other piece is and for our VPN specifically it connects the user behind a firewall and the important piece of this especially in the legal arena is because it's behind a firewall it has that protection the umbrella of a reference table if you will of pre-known websites and also pre-known bad websites. So we do see a lot of uh, bar associations being stood up. Um, I think typically, you know, if they're a .com, there may be a .org stood up in hopes to attack or try and socially engineer a legal practitioner to go to the fake site to give their credentials away, leading to potentially business email compromise. So having the straw to make sure that the data is protected, but also having it connect them behind a firewall enables them to be able to search with ease on the internet without the risk of potentially being socially engineered to something malicious in order to steal credentials.
0: So if a firm was generally operating in the office, and then let's take a small firm, for example, which is where somewhere I feel like we might see something like this. They were operating in the office. They probably had some cybersecurity set up there. Then everyone was suddenly at home. Were you seeing any problems with people going home and then not using any of the firm's cybersecurity? They were just connecting to their home internet. Is that going to cause? Is that going to be much more dangerous?
1: Not necessarily. Not with our solution specifically, because obviously you've got a lot of obviously controls in there to enable that work from home methodology. But for new clients that we were working with, we did start to speak to them on their approach to it. So again, as I stated earlier. A lot of them didn't have the technology or the bandwidth to enable that VPN, so they were enabling just users to access the internet directly, which takes away a little bit of the safety net. And we always talk about a defense in depth approach. So if you take away one of the mechanisms, you're relying on singular versus multiple. The other piece is for working from home. What we did see a huge increase of was all of a sudden, you know, I'm a parent of two children. I completely relied on Netflix and all my computers to be turned on to keep the kids entertained. But there's different approaches to a business organization. You've got a business derivative to drive cybersecurity. So they're paying for technology to be protected. But at home, a lot of people do not consider that you know home devices are a risk. And I'm not saying that if your kid's laptop was on the same IPS, ISP connection that you're on, that was going to be a direct drive to you being compromised. But what we did see was an increase of additional Internet of Things, you know, all the laptops, devices being added onto the Internet, which actually increased the amount of traffic that we were seeing from a passive automatic botnet style type of attack where scans were happening across the Internet attempting to exploit other vulnerabilities. So working from home wasn't necessarily an issue. You know, small businesses don't may never, ever be targeted, you know, but that's a roll of the dice you've got to make. But when everybody is now working from home, we had a double of the amount of volume that we were normally seeing from devices connected to the Internet attempting to exploit people. So therefore, if you didn't have that additional due diligence and additional security in place, the increase in volume of exploitations made the odds a little bit less, more likely that you would be attacked.
0: So just coming home but not using any type of cybersecurity would probably put your data at a much higher risk.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The connectivity between a person working from home and if they're using a cloud Dropbox, uh, something, uh, you know, Dropbox.com or OneDrive.com, the connection between you and that Dropbox connection, you know, theoretically would go unencrypted. So if I go back to the, the straw idea, if you didn't have that straw, you're going to have to go through the pond water to get to the right place. So you may have some form of encryption, but it will not be as high standard or an advanced encryption standard that is needed to encrypt to make it extremely hard for an adversary to detect and obviously decrypt your information. So you open yourself up to that risk, which you know is always a vulnerability that you do not want to take on if possible.
0: That pond water analogy is perfect. I think it really uh, it helps you visualize exactly what a VPN is and how it helps. Now, you touched on something just there where you said, you know, small businesses, maybe they feel like they're too small to be targeted. What are your thoughts to someone who says, well, we're a firm of three, we're not running a substantial amount of information around? I, I can't expect that someone would really come after us.
1: Traditional mechanisms on how adversaries worked, you know, they would go to the bank. If you go all the way back to the 1800s when cowboys and Indians were like running around, if you wanted money, you'd go target the bank. You have to physically go there. In this day and age with everything interconnected, people are not directly targeted. As I stated, when everybody started working from home with all these additional devices online, what these compromised machines were doing, they were just scanning the internet looking for vulnerabilities. And this is now how the adversary works. So you may not be targeted, but if your your machines are not updated or your account credentials have not been appropriately managed the adversaries are going to accidentally stumble upon you and then use that capability of the fact that they know they've got an angle to get into your business to then target you. So it doesn't really matter how big or small you are. Our smallest client is one person. Our largest is two and a half thousand. They've all got the same type of footprint. And realistically, you're all using the same type of technology. So the adversary knows that they understand the mechanisms on how We work in the US and how they can approach that. So they're just scanning the internet looking for a vulnerability in your current stance. And they're not going to care how big you are because ultimately you may lose $10. To you, that's nothing. To somebody out in Africa, that's potentially a year's wage. So they will willingly put that time and effort into you, but they're not going to go, okay, let me find a legal company in Charlotte and then target them specifically. They're going to go and find data breach information that. They may pay $5 for 5,000 records, and part of that record, your information's in there, and they're then gonna script that and target you.
0: Right, so to go back to your early analogy with you know 19th century bank robbers, they had to sit down, they had to map out this one bank they're gonna rob on this one specific day. It sounds like it's much more complex where they're just kind of almost running a program that is gonna go out and look for any openings Anywhere. And if you happen to be that opening, they're coming in the door.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if I can speed up the longer story, but Equifax got hacked because Apache Struts. Uh, Apache Struts is a server that most financial institutions use. So not many small businesses are using them. The attack actually drove from some political government interactions with some foreign entities that allowed, at the same time as when that was happening, a Chinese scientist identified the vulnerability in the apache server the next day and a black hat hacker you know said well this is how you exploit it and then all of a sudden all the financial institutions were fighting the fact that third parties unknowns were targeting them at the time i worked for wells fargo so we spent we were not impacted at all because we were well equipped to fight against this type of attack but they were targeting multiple institutions of the u.s and unfortunately equifax was one that were not advanced and monitoring as what we were at the time. So they unfortunately, six months later, you know, identified that they'd been hacked and it led to that huge data breach. But the person who identified the threat in China and the person who created the exploit didn't say, oh, this is the exploit, you can go attack Equifax with that. The internet took that exploit and started scanning. And with everything being interconnected, the ease of being able to identify, there are actual websites that you can go to that are open source that allow you to see who is able to be exploited by Equifax or who has an open source printer that has a vulnerability on it that you can target with the interconnectivity of everything. And the fact that there are more adversaries out there day in, day out, that are they're just trying to make a name for themselves. I'm sure the gentleman who created the exploit for Equifax may have never even used that, but he's now got a name for himself that people understand who he is, but he never used the attack. So... Unfortunately, the targeting mechanisms are so easy. And as a hacker, you you can very easily create a toolbox of technology and mechanisms that you don't have a clue what you're doing, but you're able to exploit people. And unfortunately, this is where a lot of people get hurt because they may target you. You don't know what you're doing because they're just playing around with it. And then you become a victim of something that's going to cripple you just based on the fact that somebody found some free open source information. Right.
0: Is that guy out there getting a keyboard deal now? Is that how that works on the, on this side?
1: I'm sure he's probably been hired by a larger organization to help them. Right. That's typically how a Microsoft would have reached out to him and given him a, a nice bank payment and then, you know, taking from being a black hat hack- hacker to now being a white hat. Right. It's typically how it works.
0: Kind of like the uh, Frank Abagnale story where he was so good at fraud that I think the FBI, after they punished him, brought him in house and was like, okay, teach us how to figure this out.
1: I had the privilege of actually meeting Frank a few years ago and he yeah still works for the FBI and still working on the mechanisms of actually enabling organizations financial institutions to be secure and it's quite nice to see that and obviously he's a huge advocate now for cybersecurity perfect example you know he's just exploiting physical vulnerabilities that were unknown at the time and he was the traditional hacker because he understood there was a mechanism that he could do to make money whereas nowadays you've got these third World countries that are setting up cells of people to exploit low level. And then, you know, at the same time, we've got people like North Korea who are advocates for doing nation state type attacks, which, as we saw last year with FireEye being targeted, FireEye being one of the major players in cybersecurity, it just emphasizes that no one's really truly safe, but you've got to make sure that you approach it in the right manner. And I'm not trying to scare the hell out of everyone, because realistically, for the SB world, as we very well know, because that's where we serve, to truly defend yourself. There's no 100%, but there's a lot of 99.9% security mechanisms can be in place. And for the most part, for the low-level hackers, if you can delay them enough so they they have to spend more than 30 seconds on your organization, they're going to move on because they know there are a million other companies that are not doing what you may be.
0: Now, let's say that I'm a small firm, either existing or I'm setting up a small firm. I get my internet service in place. I get some, I I work with a cybersecurity expert to put some cybersecurity things in place. And then I start just kind of set it and then I forget it. I've talked to enough people. I know that that's one of the things people do is they will implement some solutions and then might not think about it again for a few years. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I love it. It keeps me Keeps my paycheck coming in because unfortunately the set and forget worked five years ago. It was fine. You put in a firewall, you implemented the basic controls and it was fine. But unfortunately today, there's a different approach. I can't exactly say how long it is, but realistically, cybersecurity at any one point is only a certain amount of years old and realistically, not thanks to corona, but because of Corona last year, it's now months old. And the new way of defending is gotta be completely different. So the old set and forget is a painful tool that may hurt you. Now, again, SMBs may never get targeted. That cybersecurity instrument that has been implemented in the organization, quite honestly, may have been doing quite well and is enough to scare off the adversaries. But I have never crashed my car and I hopefully have not jinxed myself. But every month I pay for car insurance just because if and when that happens, I know I can recover. But in cybersecurity, even if you're paying for insurance... It's still not going to recover the organization because the reputational impact hurts. So for me, our mechanisms, first and foremost, is obviously technology driven. Trying to get the best technology out there is obviously pertinent. However, I understand that poor technology implemented well is obviously significantly better than good technology implemented poorly. We try to do the best of both good technology and great implementation. And the idea behind that is to have it implemented in today's requirements, you know, in the last weeks, what are the best practices? And without getting into too much detail, there's a lot to it. And there's a lot more than I can even jump to. And that's why I've got technical engineers sitting underneath me who live and breathe that stuff. But if you ask them anything outside of what they know intricately, they'll they'll struggle. But, you know, that's the expertise that I'm paying for. So the idea is you need to have a continuous adaptive approach that needs to be implemented in a preventative mode, which is a nice bit of a ratio where you talk about prevention first, zero noise, and then business operations, which zero trust, um, is the idea of understanding what the business does and creating the policies to only allow that to drive. Anything new to the organization needs to go through an approval state, which in some aspects does sound quite fatiguing, but it very rarely happens. If you can get over that fact that once it's been implemented, any new change is quite easy to adapt but we just need to vocally talk about it and get it into the system the zero touch mechanism the idea is twofold is i don't want to have my team continuously jumping into this to have to continue every single day change something just to enable the business to work that's not good business for either side of the house because it's just going to hurt at some point so utilizing best in brand technology modern technology allows that focus to happen and you know it's very technology driven based on the policies but it creates that ability for my company not to be inundated with continuous maintenance and the organization not to be fatigued by the fact that everything keeps getting impacted which then promotes the last piece which is the business operations and I think today 2021 2020 definitely for sure people understood that there was a ratio between security and business ops versus 2018 where it's business ops led everything and there needs to be some security so i think there has been a great drive to have this technology that is modern it is implemented correctly you know prevention first is critical the doctor said prevention beats the cure and in the financial nature it's heavily cheaper to prevent than it is obviously to cure yourself again i can't talk to the financial impact that any organization will have from a reputational for the most part organizations that we do see who are impacted are not single digits hundreds or thousands the tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars and then again the reputational impact they just don't know so again the set and forget mechanism doesn't work again it could but if you want to take that gamble go to vegas
0: (laughs) it sounds like the real money is in crisis management huh
1: yeah very much so crisis management ponemon which are a, a beautiful institution that do a lot of analysis on the impact cost of a business it's quite funny because you say, oh, well, the average cost to an s and is $1.2 million, or it could be all the way up to 3.4, depending on the size. $1.2 million might make no understanding to an organization if their revenue is $100,000 a year. But the idea is you know, it could be 1.2. And if it is, does that mean that you get hit by that type of attack, your business goes under? I don't want to have that conversation. Never do. We've been very fortunate, again, touching wood, That when our technology has been implemented in the right mechanisms, we never have to have that conversation. But the other piece to what we're providing is if we have to jump up to that next level, we are ready. When SolarWinds got attacked last year, a lot of our organizations were asking, okay, how is that impacting us? We just had to change our mechanism slightly. Okay, we're now being on the responsive end, which we typically don't have to do because we're prevention first. But we're ready for this. We have the bandwidth. We have the mechanisms to detect these anomalies. And then also being technical experts and the fact that the company are willing to take on a little bit more of a stronger grip around security, we can create policies to prevent the upstream SolarWinds attack ever hurting them, which, unfortunately, it didn't hurt any of the people that we're serving.
0: Very good. Well, I have a couple more questions before I let you get out of here. One of the things that I've heard come up in legal circles is the use of a server. It was very common. A lot of firms, especially older firms, are still using a server in-house even smaller firms what are your thoughts on that because i have one of my relatively close friends was using a server and it got hijacked a few years ago and they demanded bitcoin in order to release it and she didn't know what bitcoin was she had to figure out how to buy it She had to give them the bitcoin and get her server back and then that caused a lot of problems you have to notify every single client who whose data was exposed and it creates a, a big headache so what are your thoughts on having a server in the law office?
1: It's on-prem technology is fine. Again, you know, it's the, the approach to how you protect. The old mechanism, as you stated, is still a solid mechanism organization topology to have. You just got to make sure there is obviously security controls in front of that. So obviously, having a firewall sit on the perimeter before the server is obviously there. Understanding what the server does. Is it internet facing? Do you need to have somebody from outside the organization be able to connect to it? Or is it just used as a NAS file where it's storing the data? The other considerations into that are making sure that the, you're protecting the data. And it's not just protecting the, that one piece of data, but making sure that you have backups of it that are also protected. Hackers understand you know, how organizations work. They're going to come in and before they hit you with ransomware, they're going to find the crown jewels they're getting more and more sophisticated at the moment to identify, okay, are you also backing up? Because ultimately, again, they're not targeting you. They're willing to move away. And quite frankly, they're not engaging with you. They'll leave a file on your server that says, we've encrypted you. This is our type of attack that we're doing. Here's the Bitcoin wallet that you need to send the money to. And that's the only engagement they're going to do with you because they're just going to wait for their wallet to increase and then they're done. Yes, in some cases, they may also steal the data. I I very rarely see that because that leaves a bit of a breadcrumb trail for us to find where that's gone. So ultimately, having perimeter protection firewall sitting in between that server and the internet, maybe even have some specific topology to prevent that interconnectivity. But also having backups is extremely important. Understanding what that looks like, we have the mechanism to be able to establish a two hour backup. And recovery, again, recovery is very important. You know, It's all well and good having that backup. But if it's going to take you three weeks to recover that data, there's going to be financial implications to the business. So ultimately having that disaster recovery conversation, which I'll not get too much into it, but is very important. And fundamentally, having technology on site is fine. The mechanisms are there. The cloud is available. But the fundamental piece of the cloud, that's just somebody else's computer. It doesn't mean that if you put it in the cloud that it's secure, you still need to secure that. So if you go to a data center, there is still interconnectivity with the internet. If you put it in AWS or you know Google or Azure, it's still internet accessible. It's still just a server in a data center somewhere physical in the US. So again, the approach to all them servers need to have some security on it. Realistically, endpoint security is fantastic to obviously identify and prevent any ransomware types of attacks. The firewall and the perimeter is obviously going to prevent any interconnectivity. And then worst case scenario, having that backups is obviously pertinent to make sure that if it did come to the case that you were hit, you can recover.
0: Now, what is going on right now that lawyers should be on the lookout for? Like, What kind of recent attacks are happening that lawyers can today immediately just be on the lookout for and raise awareness with their team about?
1: Yeah, so one of the biggest things that hit legal companies, and obviously, each lawyer is probably doing some different type of practice. So obviously, there's a little bit of uh, distillation in terms of which type of target is happening. But a good scenario would be, you know, when a house is closing, and there's got to obviously be legal documentation. And for example, I, as a buyer of a house, have to send you a wire payment. So ultimately, the fundamental of that information gets transferred through email. Again, from a legal practitioner, a lot of the communications that you're doing are all email based. The unfortunate piece for legal practitioners are they're working with civilians. I mean that in the premise of a business email versus a personal email. When I was working with the legal company, you know, I'm not using my business email account. I'm using my Gmail Hotmail account. And so what that means is the legal representative are communicating with brand new email accounts continuously. So what seems to happen quite a lot of the times is they may be spoofed or there could be a business email compromise that allows the hacker to either take control of the legal practitioner's email address and therefore to reach out to the civilian, the person they're working with, to manipulate what they're doing, send them sensitive information, social security numbers, or change the invoice routing. So with that being the biggest pinnacle, and you know, I call it a low-level type of attack because email security is very easy to defend against, But if you've not got anything in place, you're going to go unaware that that type of attack has happened. So ultimately, having some type of email security is always the safety net. But realistically, as much technology as you want to put into an organization, it all falls flat at the person if the person is not trained. Because they need to be understanding of what type of attacks are actually targeting them, what they should be looking for. And really, realistically, if they were to click on a link and put the credentials in, What actions they should take time and time again in my past. People lie. Oh, I didn't put my credentials in there. And they'll happily put their head in the sand and hope for the best. But realistically, it wasn't me. Yeah, exactly. But realistically, that information now has been shared. So if somebody has, you know, I've logged into an email, I've put my email address and my password, I'm now potential for having my email account compromised and then all my mail list be targeted by that hacker, therefore impacting me by. Visual aspect of the fact. Sorry, guys, I was hacked, and they used me as a pivot point. And then the other pieces that take into account, you know, if I'm using the same password and same email account for multiple different platforms, the world's the oyster of the hacker. You know, they can get into your data, they can go to your social media, and they can destroy you. And it's a harsh statement, but very easy technology through email gateways, endpoint protection, training and awareness, and then mechanisms around how you manage your accounts and having multi-factor. Most of these are, you know, implemented and embedded into the technologies you're using. But most people, unfortunately, I can't practice law. I haven't got a clue. You know, I understand the speed limit and that's about as much as I can say. And it's the kind of flip reverse is, well, I know multi-factor's a thing, but I don't know how to enable it. So I'm not going to bother because I don't want to waste six hours and destroy something. So it really puts a pinnacle on the fact that legal organizations need to rely on third party companies to provide them the true support from an IT perspective, but also this true support from cybersecurity, which are two different swim lanes.
0: Sure. Something I I talk about a lot when I'm talking to lawyers is use a password manager, because that addresses one of the things you said you're using the same password, you shouldn't be using the same password for anything. But it's also ridiculous to think that you could remember sufficiently complex passwords for all the multiple things that we have to do. So I mean my my team here at the company and in my family we all have a password manager. My wife doesn't have to email me or text me and say what's the Disney Plus password? She can just look in her password manager because we share it. And they have the same thing for businesses where you can store it all behind one sufficiently complex password and it just creates the passwords for you.
1: Completely agree. Ironically, if I was to forget my very complex password to my password manager, I would not be able to work because every single one of my passwords for all the accounts I use are a minimum of 25 characters. I'm not saying that you as a practitioner should do that. 12 characters is sufficient. But really take into account when you do use something like that, that you do not trend your passwords. I've seen a lot of people who summer 2020, fall 2020, winter 2020. It's things that people understand. And then the other piece to it is my son's name is like 12, 13 characters. That's a beautifully long password but it's very easily guessed if somebody knows things about me and again your information's online people can start to drive that and if somebody is truly targeting you and you are using some sort of trend mechanism like that you just make it easier for them
0: yeah i mean as recently as the last few months the president of the united states twitter account was i think more than once the password was guessed because it wasn't sufficiently complex
1: yeah well he hasn't got one now so i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure that'll help him but yeah it's against so a reputationally and he's a huge target, you know, so he probably was directly targeted. Obviously, it's not hurting him financially or anything like that because he's the president. But if you can imagine that your account was compromised, and we see it quite a lot where companies come to us and tell us that that happened, they have then got to reach out to their clientele and say, hey, this happened. And fundamentally, to me, that is such a low-level impact. But to a recipient of your email saying, hey, my account was hacked, all they see is hacked. It doesn't matter what happens after that they lose confidence in you. And that's the last thing that anybody wants to do. So implementing these very easy practices and you know, monitoring security and stuff like that will enable you never to have to have that conversation. Right, all right. Last question
0: I have for you, I'll let you get out of here. As a lawyer, what should I be looking for in a cybersecurity team? What questions should I be asking? Are there red flags to avoid? Because in the lawyer world, there are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there that SEO experts and things like that What would you tell me as a lawyer to be on the lookout for?
1: That's a great question. With regards to obviously when you do engage a third-party company, we thrive ourselves on saying no quite a lot. A lot of organizations may already have a cybersecurity embedded. They may be using something that they bought themselves. I would be ultimately asking if they are accepting that technology, why? Is the technology that you're using today sufficient for the adversary that they're meant to be defending against? And then additionally, as the DOD are pushing down for a lot of things around the contractors that are working with them, what kind of third party security do they implement on their organization? As I stated previously, there are two different swim lanes between IT and cybersecurity. So we like to say no to poor technology because we want to be preventative first. You also obviously want to make sure that the organization is eating the same technology. They've got it themselves. Versus just trying to come to you to make money. A lot of organizations will just happily accept the technology that you have and say that they'll monitor it because then they're not having to financially pay for that. Our approach is slightly different. You know, We try to bring the whole technology, service, and solution to your organization to actually be an extension of your team versus just a service provider. There are a lot of buzzwords out there. Try to keep away from them. The machine learning, AI, all these big words that are just trying to make it sound more complex. Ultimately, if you've got confidence and they distill confidence in you, that's obviously the biggest key. But having them really explain why their technology they use and their mechanisms is really important because they can put the technology in and they'll probably defend you for the most part. But the question really comes to what happens if a breach happens? What actions do you take? Because a lot of the times, organizations will stumble at that. Well, the technology will prevent it. What if it doesn't? What would you do? What are your actions on? And at that point, you're putting them on the back foot, and they'll then have to explain to you how they will approach your organization to prevent or to mitigate the threats into your organization. It's all well and good selling the upfront technology and what that does, but it's the worst case scenario that you want them to sell you on. So if I am breached because your technology fails, what would we do? And if they start stumbling, probably because they've never had to go through that mechanism, but that's where you need to get the confidence because it's the worst case scenario that you're paying for.
0: All right, John. Well, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. If somebody wanted to speak with you or your company, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Somebody wants to reach out to us. We're very easily accessible on our website, which you can find through Googling covidcyberdefense.com. On there, there's obviously the contact information for cyber at covidtech.com. And obviously on our website, you'll be able to see the uh, level of services that we provide. And I believe we've got some of our current clients, obviously advocating for what we do. So you can obviously read up on that type of information as well.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Tom. We're going to go ahead and link all of that on the blog and the show notes as well. So you can check that out there.
1: All right. Thanks, sir. Thank you very much, sir.
0: Thanks for joining us. For resources from the episode, go to the show notes in your podcast player or visit lawpods.com slash podcast. Do you know someone who's staying on top that should be a guest on the show? Submit their name to Let's Podcast at lawpods.com.
1: Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay profitable.